Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Well, good morning. It's uh, great to be with you. That was probably the weakest good morning I have ever heard in my entire life. We have masks on, we don't have corks in our mouths, so good morning. Good morning. My name's Andrew. I'm one of the interim co-lead pastors here. And again, welcome to you. Uh, Welcome to those online. Feel free to participate in the chat. It's a great way to create community. Uh, Today, we are getting back into our series through the book of Romans. So I do invite you to have a Bible open or uh, the text open on your phone. Um, We're in a day and an age where you can have your phone open in church and people aren't going to judge you uh, because you're looking at the scripture. So that's great. Um, Today, we are coming into one of the great texts of the Bible. It's a text that unfolds the gospel of justification. Now, don't be afraid of that word. It's a long word, but it's simply a word that comes from the law court. It means uh, to be declared right. Uh, We've seen over the past few weeks the, the problem, the real verdict that humanity is under sin, and today we're gonna see how is it that sinful humanity can yet stand before God and be declared to be righteous, to be declared just. So whether you're uh, religious or not, I wanna invite you to come along with us today. Maybe you're just joining us and you're curious about Christianity and what Christians believe. Let's open up to Romans chapter three, verses 21 to 26. Romans three, verses 21 to 26. Let's give ear, for this is the word of the Lord. It says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Living God, as we enter your word, we do so humbly. And I ask that you would come into our weakness to to really understand what is going on here and to apply your word to our lives. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and illumine our hearts and minds. Come and show us Jesus and the wonder of the gospel that we might be transformed in this encounter with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray it in the mighty name of Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. Before we get into this text, I want you to think about a situation in your life that seemed so hopeless you had given up all hope for a resolution. 
I mean, some of us have experienced that personally, but whether you have or not, you've probably read a story or seen a movie that sets up that kind of a situation. And we know what it's like, right? To feel powerless, to feel like defeat is inevitable. Maybe fans of the Toronto Maple Leafs know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but that might be too painful for some of us to consider. So um, consider this story. At the end of The Lord of the Rings, there's this scene. Frodo and Sam, the two little hobbits, have just completed their quest. They've thrown the ring of power into the mountain of fire. It's been destroyed. And there they are, completely spent. They're starved. And they're like lying on this little hunk of rock on a mountain that is exploding and lava is starting to flow around them. Picture that scene, right? They're totally done. They're powerless. There's nothing they can do. They are like miles and miles away from rescue. They are totally exhausted. And it's just time to accept the fact that they're not going to make it home. And then what happens? All of a sudden, there's like this gleam of light. And there's this cry from eagles. And eagles swoop down from the sky and rescue these two little hobbits. It's, It's this hope beyond hope. There's actually a name for this. In literature and in theater, it's called Deus Ex Machina, which is Latin for God from the machine. It's, it's a plot device, and it comes from ancient Greek plays. So in ancient Greek plays, they would set up a plot tension that got to a point where you just felt, there is no way this is going to be resolved. And then all of a sudden... An actor who who is usually playing a god would be lowered by a machine and strapped to cords and they would come, boom, and fix everything. God from the machine. Interesting. And many scholars believe that this is what Paul has actually done for us in Romans chapters one through three as we come to today, that he's been setting up that real verdict in this this point where we feel like the problem can't be solved. How how is God gonna deal with human sin and yet be just and yet bring us through on the other side? This is what Paul's doing here, but instead of the story playing out in a theater, it's, it's playing out on the stage of the universe and of world history. The real guilt, uh, the real verdict is that all humanity is under sin. We stand before God guilty and unrighteous. And even those who claim the privilege of the Jewish law, right? Even the most moral people who tried their hardest fail to meet God's standard. It's an unsolvable problem until verse 21 with those blessed words, but now. But now, he says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. And he goes on to talk about how this righteousness, which is God's, is somehow going to be given to humans, to you and I. It's an incredible thought that somehow we humans, under sin, deserving of guilt, are going to be justified. Justification is about how God does this. It's about how he brings about our righteousness. And so what we're going to do today is unpack the dynamics of justification, okay? I want you to come with me on this journey. We're going to unpack these three dynamics, the dynamics of grace, redemption, and faith. Let's start with grace. Verse 23, would you look there with me? In verse 23, he he reiterates that verdict, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in 24, he says, and all are justified 
freely by his grace. This verse is communicating this dynamic of grace. The word freely there literally is the word for gift. It means something that is not merited, uh, but came solely because the one who gave the gift wanted to give it. Grace is the word that the Bible used to talk about how God has intervened in the world, and he intervenes, not because we've been good, uh, or because we will be good, right? It's not because, God, I promise I'll be good. You know those prayers in movies sometimes? God, if only you'll get me out of this situation, I promise to follow you for the rest of my life. That's not what's going on here. This is grace. It's unmerited. He intervenes because in doing so, he's being true to who he is. Love. He's righteous. He's holy. And so as we consider this grace gift dynamic of justification, I want us to ask the question, why would God give us grace in the first place? Right? If, if justification is kind of about this law court scene and we stand before God and we're unrighteous, why would God get involved? See, there's an important idea from the Old Testament that is injected into the thought of Romans here. And we need to state it because it's so important. It's the idea of covenant. Covenant. A covenant is like a partnership. Uh, but instead of a business partnership, you know, where there's an exchange of goods and services or money, a covenant partnership is about an exchange of persons. It's about an exchange of personhood. It's a solemn commitment of one person to another. So in the story of the Old Testament, God made covenants with humanity in general and Abraham and the Jewish people in particular. And in this covenant, God made promises to them and he asked them to follow in his way in return. But it was founded on this identity that he would be their God and they would be his people, right? An exchange of persons. This is the backstory of justification. This is why God would rescue us or so moved to rescue us in the first place. It's because he's the God of all grace, right? He didn't just make us and then say to us, tremble before me, uphold my justice, and you're on, my own, on your own, good luck. He made us and then entered into relationship with us. He moved toward us. He gave himself to us. This is why uh, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright translates righteousness in our passage as covenant justice. That there is a relational covenant that undergirds what God has done in Jesus Christ. And on a very practical level, and this is wondrous to think about, the covenant means that God has skin in the game. God has skin in the game when it comes to you and I. Right, made in his image, dearly loved by him, turned away from him in rebellion, in sin, and yet he perseveres because of his great love and his covenantal justice. So let's think about this relational dynamic of grace. Grace is happening in this context of covenant partnership, but there are different ways relationships can work. Right? We grow up, in Western society at least, in a school system that operates on the principle of testing. Right? You, you come up and you learn this way of being that I'm going to put in the work and then I'm going to get tested and then if I pass the test, I'm going to keep advancing. That's kind of the relational deal of the school system. And then uh, 
you graduate and you get into the business world. And then the principle of, of relating is a wage, right? It's a wage. Uh, in a wage relationship, you know, you work, you go to work, you perform, you put in the hours, and then the company gives you a wage. And the reason they give you a wage is because they owe it to you, right? They have to do it. You don't get a paycheck and then walk into your boss's office and say, thank you so much for my paycheck. Oh my goodness, this is amazing. He'd be like, or she'd be like, what did you expect? This is what we owe you. You don't have to thank me for it. That's the operating principle of wage. And, and this is why the gospel is so different from what we're used to in modern secular society. We're used to testing, right? We're used to wage, or in the age of social media, we're used to like affirmation and doing something and then people like it and you get that feedback of affirmation, this thing that justifies you. But grace is not like that. Grace is a gift. It's not something you earned. It's not something that you passed a test in order to get. And this grace of God that Paul is talking about in this text leads us to see the gift that God has given us. It's that second dynamic of justification. It's, the, it's redemption. Redemption. So look at verse 23 with me again. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. See, grace is about how God comes to us, that he comes to us out of the abundance of his own loving will. Um, but then redemption is about what God did to save us. Redemption is where God's grace causes us to look. And redemption is actually a really special word. It comes from the ancient world of economics. And it was a term that meant to pay the ransom price for a slave. It was to pay the ransom price for a slave. So, so think about that. Um, it wasn't just about freeing a slave because you could do that by uh, illegal means, right? You could go and you know, steal the slave from its former owner. Um, you could smuggle them out of captivity. But re redemption actually means paying the price. It means freeing the slave while also upholding justice. And it's a word that casts humanity as we've seen, right? We're in slavery to sin and evil. We're morally corrupt, but then God intervenes in redemption. He pays the price for our freedom. How did he do that? Check out verse 25. It explains it more. It says that that redemption was achieved by God who presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. It happens because God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Now that idea is very strange for us moderns, um, but it comes from the Old Testament, a sacrifice of atonement. Um, the word actually refers to the mercy seat of God. So in, in the Old Testament religion, the worship life of Israel, once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest would go into the holy of holies. This was the hot spot of God's presence and he would offer a sacrifice to cover the sins of Israel. And what he would do is before the Ark of the Covenant, 
um, there was this lid. It was covered in gold. It was ornate. It had the, the wings of a cherubim. And he would take the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And the main idea in this whole ritual was substitution. It's that God's justice needed to be satisfied. Evil and wrong need to be atoned for, but God made a way for another to stand in the people's place, for a sacrifice to to bear the sin of the people so that the people might be forgiven and freed. But there's even more than forgiveness going on in this idea of a sacrifice atonement. The, The sacrifice not only turns away God's wrath and covers over sin, but get this, it goes a step further, it actually purifies. It actually cleanses the sinner from unrighteousness. I mean, it's one thing, right, to be forgiven from, for something, but it's quite another to be washed clean. And that's what's going on here. This dynamic of redemption explains how God is able to be both just and merciful. It's, it's, it explains how God has carried out his justice in the cross of Jesus Christ, but also his mercy, right? Um, when it comes to thinking about being justified by grace through faith, we can sometimes think, well, did God just arbitrarily suspend his justice? Did he just decide to turn a blind eye to our sin and wrongdoing? No. He didn't suspend his justice. The ransom was paid, The price of redemption was offered in Jesus as our atoning sacrifice. You see, justice happened because sin was put on Jesus and he was judged. But mercy was rendered because God in Christ took our sin on himself and bore it so that we might come through righteous, declared righteous because what God has done in Christ at the cross. Just think about that for a moment the wonder of the cross, the brilliance of the cross, the glory of the cross. This is how God both judges sin and saves the sinner. It's Christ who stood in our place and took on the penalty and judgment we deserved. This is what Paul is talking about in verse 26. Look there with me. He says, In it, in the sacrifice of atonement, which he presented, his righteousness was demonstrated at the present time so as to be just, to carry out justice against sin and evil, and the one who justifies those sinful humans who have faith in Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying in the cross, the mercy and justice of God are blended together such that sin is actually dealt with and atoned for and we might actually be cleansed and declared righteous in Christ. And this is such good news. You see, the grace of justification, what Paul is announcing to us, centers on the redemption of Christ. It centers on the cross. And then the last dynamic of justification It comes into our lives through faith. It comes into our lives through faith. Notice the words faith in our text or the word believe. It occurs four times in these verses and um, the word faith and belief are actually the same Greek word. It's the word pistis. 
Uh, and so we have you know, two English words translated um, from one Greek word, so they are the same idea. Look at in verse 22. It says this righteousness, this, this declared uh, righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who have faith. In verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by us by faith. And then again in verse 26, it's, it's so that God could be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I mean, faith is just such a central word in the Bible and for Christians. And faith is how justification goes from being a concept and an idea to actually translating into our lives and becomes true of us. Faith is how justification becomes true of us. And faith relies, is talking about what we trust in. It, it talks about what we rely on in life. I mean, think about it this way. We all have trust structures in our life. We all live and lean on things that we hold to be foundational for our existence, right? Things that we look to to, to justify ourselves. And the gospel calls for a new trust structure. And it's a trust structure that is organized and founded on the lordship of Christ, on his person and work. And when we hear the word faith, I want us to think about this because the word faith, you know, some of us wrestle with that word a lot. We often hear this word and we think that the emphasis of the word is on us. I mean, faith is indeed, in one sense, uh, our response back to the grace of God. And, and we often get paralyzed with this question or we often come under the weight of guilt because we, we, we approach faith with this question, how much faith do I have? How strong is my faith? How much passion or conviction am I able to muster? You see, often religious faith is equated with personal zeal, right? That's often how we use it, your, your spiritual power. But if we think about faith in that way, you know what we're actually doing? We're actually just setting up another work for us to do by which we try to justify ourselves. If faith is primarily something I do that I need to have strong convictions, um, we can actually live under the weight of guilt because we don't feel like we have enough faith and our faith isn't strong enough. And what's happened there? We have turned the gift of faith into yet another work that we need to do. Right? Because let's be honest, our experience of following Jesus in a, in a world that is broken that we often get the sense that our faith isn't strong enough, that my commitment is sometimes shaky. I have doubts. I keep on sinning. I fall short. Sometimes we feel the powerlessness. But let me just invite you to consider that faith is not yet another work for us to do. It's not the same thing as religious zeal. Tim Keller defined faith this way. He said, faith isn't a level of psychological certainty. It's an act of the will in which we rest in Jesus. Faith is not psychological certainty or religious zeal. It is an act of the will in which we rest in Jesus. And that's what's Paul, what Paul is showing us about the dynamic of faith. 
Notice how every single time the word faith appears in our text, Paul uh, is drawing our attention not only to the to faith, but primarily to the one towards whom faith is directed. Every single time, it's faith in Jesus. Christ is the object of faith. And and you see, faith, gospel faith, faith in the dynamic of justification doesn't turn us in on ourselves to work up more faith. It actually turns us and opens us towards Christ to rest in him, to experience a deep, existential rest because Christ is our foundation. Christ has rescued us. See, the key question about faith is not how much faith do you have. The key question is, who are you putting your faith in? Who are you resting in for your justification? Who are you resting in for that sense that your life is enough? See, the object of faith is the main thing. In the book of Matthew, there's a story told uh, where Jesus' disciples, um, you know, they'd be hanging out with Jesus for a while. They'd be learning from Jesus, the teacher, the master, and Jesus gave them authority. He gave them authority over uh, evil spirits, and he sends them out. He says, go, confront evil, drive it out in my name. And, and in this story in, in Matthew 17, Uh, The disciples encounter uh, a demon-possessed boy and and they do what Jesus told them to do. They they try to exercise their faith and their authority in driving out the demon from this boy and it doesn't work. They, They couldn't cure him. And what happens in the story is that, uh, you know, it's kind of like, hey, can I, can I talk to your manager on this one? <laughs> the parent says, uh, you know, hey, Jesus, your, your employees couldn't get it done. Like, what's going on? C- can you help me out here? And so Jesus drives the demon out and then they're debriefing after, right? Because every experience we have with Jesus is an opportunity to learn. And the disciples ask him, Jesus, why couldn't we drive it out? You know, you gave us authority, I don't understand. And Jesus says it's because of their small faith. Isn't that interesting? He says it's, it's because of your small faith. And then he says, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, which in Jesus' day was like the tiniest little grain, it was like a really small thing. He says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So he says they have small faith, but then he says, if you have small faith, you can move this mountain. What's going on here? Leon Morris helps us out. He explains that the disciples had been treating their power to cast out devils as a new possession of their own, a kind of magic They would go through their routine and the devil would come out. But that is not the way it was. There was nothing in the disciples themselves that overcame demons. It was God who in every case gave the power. It was necessary for them to look to him and to act in humble faith. You see, the point about faith, it's not a possession of our own. It's not something that we have to work up to muster. It is always about Jesus, the powerful one. It is always about who we are putting our faith in. And Jesus' point is you can have the smallest kernel of faith, but if it's placed in me, 
you can change the world. It's gonna change your life, right? It's not faith in our power to have faith, it's faith in the powerful one. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's the son of God who came into our humanity to redeem us. He's the only one who followed God's law. He's the only one who lived a perfect life and he offered himself in our place so that we might be justified and righteous and even more that we might become children. Children of this good, holy, and loving God. So I want us to consider today Let's run a bit of a diagnostic for ourselves. Where is our faith at? And I don't want you to ask the question, how much faith do I have? I want you to ask the question, maybe write it down, take it into prayer or journaling later. Am I resting in Jesus? Am I resting in Jesus? Am I resting in Jesus for my value and identity? Am I resting in Jesus for my righteousness? Am I resting in Jesus for the strength that I need each day to love and obey him? As you face situations where you not only feel powerless, but you are powerless, because let's be honest, friends, we are powerless against so much in our lives. We can't add a single day to our life We cannot change the minds of our loved ones. We cannot uh, intervene in the way that God can. So my question is, am I resting in the powerful one? Where you are powerless, are you resting in the powerful one? And let me just say, if, if as you reflect on this question, you get the sense that, you know, the answer is no on any one of these things, what should you do? Don't accuse yourself. Don't try to whip up faith. Rest in Jesus and ask God to give you faith. Because yes, faith is our human response to God, but it also says in Ephesians 2 that faith is a gift of God. That faith is God's work in us. Friends, here's what I've arrived at. I think faith is the soul finding its daily and eternal rest in Jesus Christ that he was presented by God as the atoning sacrifice for our sin and that in him the grace of God has shattered our performance-based value systems and brought us into the love and acceptance and presence of the holy and loving God of the universe. This is such good news. May we know this gospel. May we experience the dynamics of grace, redemption, and faith in our lives in ever-deepening ways. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we're humbled before your word. We're humbled by your grace. We're humbled as we think about your work on the cross in bearing our sin that we might be declared righteous. And we're humbled by the fact that even in faith, God, this is a work that you do in us. So God, would you come, send your spirit upon us. Would you minister as we respond to your word in these next few moments. We pray this, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.